Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word i guess generally speaking you can say that i am a preacher of the gospel. I am a teacher of the gospel. The word gospel is, of course, an ancient word. It is translated from the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion means good news or good message. Now, if that word were invented today, we'd have to call it bad news, good news because there are two aspects of the message. Number one aspect is you're a hell-bound sinner. That, of course, is the bad news. The good news is, is that Jesus is your Savior, that you can be saved from the bad news. Now, interestingly, when the gospel was first preached, this idea of convincing people of that first aspect wasn't nearly as hard as it is today. It's very difficult to convince people that they're hell-bound sinners. Everyone is willing to accept the fact that Jesus, quote, saved them, but they just think that he saved them to pull them into heaven that he's going to be the guy that says, look how great John is. I say we let him in. That part's easy. The difficult part is convincing you that you're not the great guy you think you are and that you're going to enter into heaven not on Jesus' endorsement, but on his blood. That's the gospel. But, you know, it wasn't like that in the beginning. It wasn't so difficult to convince people that they were sinners. People knew that they were sinners. People had, in the beginning, very elaborate ceremonies to protect themselves from sin, from the consequences of sin. The difficult part was to try to convince someone that there was a Savior. Especially when you told that person, he's a person like you and I. He's a human. He's a man. Well, everyone's a sinner. How can he help me? That was the hard part. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to understand with our modern minds. Now, of course, you and I, are aware that the universally accepted teaching on this verse is that John is referring to Jesus, right? You've heard that before. You've heard that 
the word referred to in John 1, 1 is Jesus himself. John, please don't tell me one more thing that I understand from my church is wrong. I mean, you've already told me that Christmas isn't about Christ, and the table of showbread is not about the bread from heaven, and reciting prayer is not what God wants. I don't think I can take one more of those. I know that's what you're thinking. I know that you're thinking, oh great, now John's going to tell me this doesn't mean Jesus. Everyone's told me this means Jesus, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everyone tells me that's Jesus. Now John, once again, is going to tell me that's not Jesus. Now I don't blame you for thinking that. We do spend a lot of time upending tradition in this ministry. Now let me make sure that that's clear. We never mess with Scripture. What it says, we teach. Tradition and religion are fair game, but not thus saith the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You and I have been told that this is referring to Jesus. Well, well, that's correct. It is about Jesus. Oh, thank God. But let me ask you, why is Jesus' name connected with, with this word, word? Why did John choose to describe Jesus this way? He was describing Jesus. He was introducing Jesus. But why? Well, let me ask you a more basic question. What does John mean by this term, the Word? And I'm sure more than a few of you are kind of sitting up in your seats now and you think that's not so difficult. It simply means something spoken or written. Okay, but don't you think that it has to be more than that? I mean, the Apostle John placed the concept, the word, word, on a very high level when he said the word, whatever the word was, was with God and that it was God. Now, of course, that's our clue that this means Jesus because Jesus is with God and he is God. That, that part is certain. But just because we know that John refers to Jesus here doesn't mean we know why he did that. And more specifically, why did he decide to start his gospel this way? I mean, all of the other gospels opened with much more practical and more understandable ideas. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke started their books with such everyday things as family, lineage, baptisms, birth stories, those things we can pretty much understand. But John immediately throws a very heavy concept at his readers. What is it that John is saying and why 
has he decided to preach the gospel, the good news, by starting with this? Because remember, there are two aspects of the gospel. Number one, you're a hellbound sinner. And number two, you have a rescuer. That's the gospel. I have to convince you as a preacher of the gospel of those two things. And so does John. John, as a preacher, teacher of the gospel, he has to convince you of those two things. And he begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's how he started out. Well, in reality, this is really one of the most ingenious solutions to a serious problem you'll ever find in literature. Now, one of the things that I do a lot is study the history of the church. And really, the history of the church is really quite fascinating in the beginning, not so much in the middle, and certainly not so much now. But in the beginning, it was very fascinating. And one of the things I think that we collectively underappreciate is the miracle of the birth and the spreading of Christianity. And by that, I mean the growth of the acceptance of the gospel. It's really very interesting, really amazing. Because it only took a few centuries for the entire world to have at least heard about this Nazarene and what he is said to have done. In fact, the early evangelists were so successful that in fewer than three centuries, Christianity began to threaten the very political and social structure of the ancient world, and it only took about another century after those first three before the entire world was under the administration of the church. About 400 years, and the world was completely changed. But as successful as it was, as exciting as it is to read that unfold, and, and as amazing as that will appear, you have to realize that all that growth wasn't without difficulty. The world outside of Jerusalem, and in fact, the world both inside and outside of Jerusalem, was very hostile to the way, as Christianity was once called. In the very beginning, it was called the way. Everywhere the early apostles went, they met resistance, sometimes in the form of deadly violence, and sometimes in the form of 
deeply rooted philosophical and religious concepts that were often protected with fanaticism and vigilance. And by the way, that includes Judaism. The greatest threat, physical threat, to the earliest apostles came from the Jews. Well, that didn't get any better as the evangelical movement moved outside of Jerusalem, moved outside of the Jewish ways of thinking. But despite the obstacles, within about 30 years of the birth of the church, Christianity did indeed begin spreading through the rest of the world. Jesus' name was becoming increasingly known all over Greece and Asia Minor, and even extending all the way to Rome. And we know that some of the disciples, some of the apostles, went as far as India the other way. To this day, it's very, it's not uncommon to find Christian churches in that part of the world, the eastern part of the world, that trace their roots all the way back to the original 12 apostles. So the Christianity did begin spreading immediately. And as the church expanded, spread out, and grew, Christians of Jewish descent quickly and decidedly became a minority among the brotherhood. By about 60 AD, not even 30 years after the death of Christ, for every one Jewish believer, there were thousands of Greek believers. The Jewish way of seeing God was becoming seriously diluted among the brethren. You see, the concept of the Messiah was something that was foreign to the Greek mindset, and yet it was at the heart of the Jewish religious philosophy. Any attempt to explain to the Greeks that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed, was proving difficult at best. Even using the Greek word Christos, which is where we get our word Christ, didn't help. They, of course, knew that Christos meant the anointed. It was their word. But they didn't even understand what God's anointed meant. In fact, they thought Christ was just someone's name. They thought it was just some odd second name, second proper name. And they thought it was Jesus Christ, was, that was his name, which, as you know, is not. So much so that they actually started calling the members of this, the Greek people I'm speaking of, the Greek people that were unaware of what this idea of Messiah was. They didn't understand why the word anointed was being used. They just thought it was the guy's name so much so that they called the followers of Jesus Christ Christianoi, which means Christ's people. 
The name, of course, stuck. We're now called Christians. But that's the lack of understanding that the Greeks had about the concept. You see, the problem in the Greek-influenced world wasn't necessarily armed resistance. It was intellectual resistance. And this presented a problem. Now, of course, there had been definite success among the Jewish-speaking world within the Jewish-speaking world to this point, mainly because of the conversion of the Jewish communities there. We know that when Paul went to the different parts of the known world, he would first visit the Jewish synagogues, and it would be there that he would begin his conversion effort. So there was some success among the Greek-speaking world, but further growth outside of those synagogues was being threatened by a lack of common ground, if you will. In fact, those Greeks that had already been won to Christ could just as easily slip away if there wasn't a better approach to their culture, if it wasn't being, being managed properly by their teachers. Merely becoming a Christian, as we all know, is only the beginning. There's so much more to learn with our walk with him. And let's face it, it was going to be up to those newly converted Greek-speaking Christians. It was going to be up to them to take the message of the gospel into the latter part of the second century and beyond. As I said, the Jewish influence in the Christian world was on the wane. How was that going to continue to happen? How did that continue to happen? How was the significance of Jesus going to be presented to the part of the Greek-speaking world that was completely unfamiliar with Judaism? How were you going to convince the Greek-speaking world that they have a Savior? They don't even know what that means. They knew they were sinners. That was a part of their religion as well. They knew they did not live up to the standards of the gods. But they didn't know how to. They didn't know how they could be accepted. And telling them about the anointed or the Messiah wasn't cutting it. They didn't understand that. To repeat... The success of understanding who Christ is among the Jewish converts was directly attributable to the fact that the religious mindset of the Jewish people was predisposed to expect the Messiah. But the word Messiah meant as much to the ancient Greeks as the word astronaut. To be effective in continuing the spread of Christianity, to be effective in preaching those two aspects of the gospel throughout the world dominated by the Greek culture, a new approach 
that was specific to them must be discovered. And this was a challenge because a view of Christ had to be developed that would not alter the truth, while at the same time appealing to the Greek mind and culture. And for the Apostle John, this became a particularly menacing issue. You see, around 100 AD, John was living in Ephesus. And Ephesus, at that time, was in the very midst of the Greek people, religion, and culture. He was very aware that the Jewish religious concepts were not only foreign to those around him, to the Greek people around him, but he also knew that the Jewish culture and concepts were considered uncivilized among the Greek people. In order for John to be able to share with his Grecian neighbors the good news, the gospel of Christ, he would have to find an approach that they could embrace. And undoubtedly, after a significant amount of thought and prayer, John realized the answer to this challenge was a concept in Greek culture that also existed in scriptural Jewish culture. The concept was the Logos, what the King James translates into the Word. Both heritage actually shared this idea, and it was upon the basis of this shared concept of the Logos that John decided to attack this Christian dilemma. The concept of the Logos, the Word, existed in Jewish thought and in Greek thought. Now, to better understand how it links to the gospel, we should first look at how the Jews thought of the word concept. Now, I know this is a heavier topic than you're used to, but remember, I trust you. I trust the Holy Spirit. I know that the because you prayed for this in the beginning. You prayed for the Holy Spirit to open your mind. At least I, I asked you to before we began. I asked you to be to pray for understanding. So I trust that God's going to answer his prayer. Answer your prayer. So William Barclay, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he tells us that there are four strands. He calls them strands. In the Jewish background, in the culture of the Jew, that contribute to their understanding of the concept of the Word. Let's look at those four strands. Number one, to the Jew, words actually do things. You see, to the Jews, words are far more than mere sounds. Each word has a life of its own, an independent existence, as Barclay puts it. To the Jews, especially the ancient Jews, words actually do things. They're active. 
That's how the Jewish people see words. In fact, Barclay quotes a professor, John Patterson, Patterson, who puts it perfectly. He says, quote, The spoken word to the Hebrew was fearfully alive. It was a unit of energy charged with power, unquote. And I think that this at least partially explains why there are fewer than 10,000 words in the Hebrew language. Now, in contrast, there are over 200,000 words in the Greek, 20 times more. You see, the, to the Jew, they worship words to use a, maybe a, I'm stretching the word worship, but they find them precious. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are so few in the Hebrew. Now, of course, this concept of having words is not so foreign to us in our time and culture. As children, we try to mask the pain of a hurtful slur or insult by claiming that unlike sticks or stones, words could never hurt us. You've said that before, haven't you, on the playground? Well, don't we know now how untrue that actually can be? Listen, there are very few of us who have been able to resist during some argument we fear we're losing to sling a zinger that we know is going to hit the mark with lethal accuracy. We use words to hurt because we know they're alive, don't we? If you don't believe me, read a little social media commentary once in a while. And in contrast, though still on point very often, hasn't it been true that the inspirational words of a mentor or charismatic leader have led us to do things that are difficult or even dangerous? There are those who grew up in Great Britain during the Blitz that reminisce how the words of British Prime Minister Winston Churchill sustained them during one of their darkest periods in history. In our own lifetime, we can remember how the words of our local and national leaders reminded us what it meant to be Americans following the devastating attacks of September 11, 2001. Let me tell you, America did not need or lack for people willing to die for our country after that, largely because of the words of our leaders. Who could forget the statement from the here on Flight 93 and what it meant to a nation that was back on its heels? I still tear up when I think about it. Let's roll. Remember that? That was the rallying cry of that unnamed hero on Flight 93. It still reverberates today. The power of words. They do things. 
They have potential, to use a scientific word. Poets know it. Poets know the powers of words. Listen to Will Carlton as he describes this. Boys flying kites haul in their white-winged birds. You can't do that way when you're flying words. Careful with fire is good advice we know. Careful with words is ten times doubly so. Thoughts unexpressed may sometimes fall back dead, but God himself can't kill them when they're said. Words are active. We believe that, and the Jews believe that strongly. That's number one strand. Number two, to the Jew, words have power. The Hebrew Bible is filled with the evidence of the power of words. From its very beginning, we can see that. Right? It's by God's word that creation was wrought. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament. God said, let us make man in our image. And Genesis is not the only place we see the power of God's word. Psalm 147.15, He sendeth forth His commandment upon the earth. His word runneth swiftly. Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Words have power. That's well known to the Jews. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That wasn't an outlandish statement to the Jew. That very Jewish Pharisee of Pharisees, he knew the immense power of the word. He said so in Romans 10.10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's the power of the word, the spoken word that seals our salvation. You see, according to Paul, Believing is one thing, but speaking is another. You believe it and you speak it. It's the power of the word. Words have power. That's two. Words do things. Words have power. Number three. We have to do a little background first to explain this one. It may come as a surprise, but during Jesus' time, classic Hebrew had become largely a forgotten language among the common man and woman. For more than 100 years that preceded Jesus' time on earth, most Jews no longer spoke Hebrew, not even in Palestine. They spoke largely Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew, but with some substantial differences. So substantial, in fact, that 
classic Hebrew was not a language language that was easily understood by the people. For the most part, at Jesus in Jesus's day, only the scholars could act, including Jesus, by the way, only the scholars could actually read, write, and speak the original Hebrew. And since the ordinary man or woman couldn't understand it, the Hebrew scriptures had to be translated. We've talked about this only recently. These translations are called the Targums. The Hebrew scriptures were read in the synagogue, of course, but they were read from the Targums. They were translated from the Targums. The original Hebrew was read, and then the Targums were read so that the people could understand. And at the time that the Targums were first being written, it was a reflection. The Targums were a reflection of the Jewish view of God. Remember, I'm trying to give you some background here. Well, when the Targums were being written, the Jews viewed God as distant and completely separate from humankind. He was an alien to them. Certainly not human, certainly not someone they could relate to, but in a reverent way. And that was how he was portrayed in the Targums. So the translators in their work, the translators, the ones that built the Targums from the original Hebrew scripture, reflecting this view of a distant, separate God, avoided giving God human characteristics when they wrote of him in the Targums, when they translated the scripture. Now, of course, this was quite a challenge since the original Hebrew language was filled with passages where God was spoken of in human terms. I mean, we are human. What other way was it possible to communicate about something without doing so in human terms. This was a challenge to those that wrote the Targums. Well, one of the strategies that they came up with was to use a sort of code. Now, a prime example of this is the fact that to these Jewish scholars translating the Hebrew, having a name was, well, quite human. You see, humans have names. It's a very human thing to have a name. So of to avoid attributing such an overtly human characteristic to God, whenever they came across the name of God, they substituted it with the Aramaic word memra. And in the English, memra means, I'm sure you've guessed it, the word or the word of God. As an example, Exodus 19.17, as we read out of the King James, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. Well, the original Hebrew uses 
God's name Elohim there. So, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with Elohim. The King James says God. Well, the English translation, if you will, of the Targum of this passage would be, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet the word of God, not Elohim, the word of God. That was what it would sound like if it was written in English because they used the word Memra there. Out of the camp to meet with Memra. Memra means the word of God. They did that over and over and over in the Hebrew scripture. Every time God's word was, God's name was used, they used the word Memra. Memra means the word of God. The Jewish people got so used to seeing the word, the word, associated with God. And eventually, remember that the Targums, as I have told you in the past, were a developing, evolving thing. As they continued to revise the Targums, they would make changes. So much so that they were completely different from the earliest ones. And eventually, if any human characteristic or attribute was given to God in the Hebrew Scripture, they would substitute the word Memra. So, for example, the hand of God would re be replaced with the word Memra. In other words, the Word of God. The hand of God would be the Word of God. The everlasting arms, found in Deuteronomy 33-27, was replaced with the phrase, the Word of God. They used Memra everywhere. When reading or having the Targums read to them, they would hear the word Memra over and over and over and over associated with God. And Memra means the word. It became a very seated concept in the mind of the Jew that God was the word. The, the Aramaic equivalent being Memra. It was a phrase that the Jewish believers heard hundreds of times as the Targums were read in the synagogue. And it, starting to see why John 1 1 was written the way it was? When the Targums were writ, read in the synagogue, they would hear the word Memra, the word. That's three now. Words do things, words have power. And then the word Memra, the word, was associated in the Targums, the religious documents read in the synagogue. Number four, reason. The English word word in John's Gospel, verse 1 of chapter 1, is translating the Greek word logos. You know that. When John used that word, logos, he was using it in its way. This is brilliance. I just want you to know this is brilliance. Only the Holy Spirit, listen, 
if you read what we know of John, the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, you will find he, he wasn't Luke. He, he wasn't Paul. He wasn't a brilliant scholar. What we know of John before and what little was written of him after Christ, before Christ was on earth and after Christ, he doesn't strike you as someone who's a Harvard grad. It's amazing what God does with people. Just a little bit more about John before we move on. John was one of the two sons of thunder, he and his brother. They were the ones that wanted God to rain down wrath upon the Samaritans. Destroy them all for what they had done and said about Jesus. Destroy them all. You know, he eventually became known as the gospel, the apostle of love. God has a way of transforming people that is amazing, especially when you see it unfold. This was not a brilliant guy. This was not the smartest guy in the room. There's only one explanation for this concept of the Logos. And I hope you're appreciating it for what it is, because it's amazing. God got a hold of this man, John, and gave him this concept of the Logos, and it changed the history of Christianity, I'm telling you, forever. Let's keep going. Number four. Number four strand in the Jewish concept of the word, the word. As I said, John 1.1, the word is logos. And when he used that word, he knew that his audience knew what that word meant because he was using it in its well-known full definition to the Greeks, because it was written in Greek. Someone who understood the Greek language, they knew that not only does the logos mean word, but it also means reason, intellect. John knew that these two definitions, word, intellect, and reason, Word and reason. He knew they were linked. But more importantly, he knew that his audience knew that they were linked. He knew that they were aware of the interconnectivity of these two aspects of the word logos. Reason or wisdom was very important to the Jew. In fact, they had very special writings that they classified as the wisdom literature. Much of the Apocrypha, 
has wisdom literature, the wisdom of Solomon, etc. They were very important to the Jews. The Jewish wisdom literature was very important to them. And William Barclay says that the wisdom literature contained the concentrated wisdom of the sages. The knowledge that was contained in these writings was very important to the Jews, but it was practical wisdom. Practical in that it was useful for everyday life. Now, not all of the wisdom literature was in the Apocrypha. There's some actually in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today. The book of Psalms is considered wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is considered, considered wisdom literature, as is the book of Proverbs, as you can imagine. Well, wisdom is a regular topic in Proverbs, and a very special one, as a matter of fact. You see, whenever one reads the book of Proverbs, you can actually see that wisdom or reason is portrayed mysteriously as possessing mysterious power, as, dare I say it, personified. Wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs. It takes on a personality. And as a matter of fact, listen to me, wisdom in the book of Proverbs is treated as if it's in partnership with God. Let me demonstrate. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 18, 19, and 20. She, meaning wisdom, she is a tree of life to them that hold upon her and happy. Don't worry about the gender here. It's a translation. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retaineth her. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth. By understanding hath he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up and clouds drop down the dew. Now we started this section saying that logos means both word and reason. Well, reason and wisdom mean the same thing. The concept of God's wisdom or heavenly wisdom, as we see it in the book of Proverbs, is contained in this word logos. Let's look at another passage from Proverbs just to try to connect the dots here. This time, chapter 8, we'll start at verse 22. This is wisdom speaking, if you can believe it. The Lord possessed me. That's wisdom speaking. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I, again, wisdom speaking, I was set up from ever... Why, by the way, is wisdom portrayed as having a personality? Why is Logos being portrayed as having a personality? Is it possible that it's referring to a person? I 
was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no mount- fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hill was I brought forth, was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth. Listen to this, verse 30. Then... I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. That's the personification of wisdom, as described in chapter 8 of Proverbs. Isn't it? It's fascinating. It's as if wisdom was a person. And as a matter of fact, Proverbs 8 is unbelievably similar to the opening verses of John's gospel. Let's read it again. I'm sure you've heard it before. Let me read it to you again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning. Sounds very much like Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. John is speaking of Jesus. You know that. We've established that early on. We know that John is talking about Jesus. But isn't his description of Jesus eerily similar to the way wisdom, reason, the word is described in Proverbs 8. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The Jews see wisdom reason, the word memra, as something special. To sum it up, words are active, they have power, they represent aspects of God, and they are also reason and wisdom. That's how the Jews viewed the word. So John wasn't creating something out of nothing in order to describe to the Greeks something they may already know. Because the Greeks too, as I said at the beginning of this section, know of a thing called the Logos. Here's what they know about the Logos. In Ephesus, more than 600 years before John's visit there, there was a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. He lived in Ephesus, and he recognized, as a very famous Greek philosopher, the fact that our world is in constant, in a constant state of change. All around us, 
Heraclitus noticed, and I'm sure you have too, that change dominates. Nature changes with the seasons. The landscape changes due to wind, rain, earthquakes, and even human intervention. All living things eventually grow old and die. Children become adults. Nothing is more constant than change. Heraclitus, in order to illustrate the philosophy, would use the example of a river. He would say that you never step into the same river twice. Life is like that river. It's always changing. That river is always changing. Once you dip your foot in and then you pull it out, then you step in it again, it's a new river. When you put your foot in that second time, no matter how quickly, the river is now different. You see, the river that you put your foot in previously is now some distance downstream. That's what life is like. It is always changing. There's nothing we can do. Change is happening all around us. It's pervasive and persistent. And once you recognize that, once Heraclitus recognizes it, it can bring terror to you. It probably brought terror to Heraclitus because there's so much change happening. How is it that the world is not in a constant state of chaos? I mean, it's always changing. Well, Heraclitus says that he discovered the answer. He says that with all this change around us, there must be a force that's behind all we see, that's containing all of this change. There must be something behind all that we encounter, behind all that we sense. He says it must exist. And it, this force, is what's holding everything together. Otherwise, we wouldn't last a moment. That was his discovery. And he shared it with the world. You know what Heraclitus called that force? It had to have a name. He called it the Logos. He called the force that held back chaos Logos. In fact, he said that that force made everything stable. In the English, one more time, Logos means word. In the beginning, you and I said, well, the word is something that's spoken or written. Do you see now it's so much bigger than that? John knew that the Greeks knew about Heraclitus. He was very famous. Heraclitus said it was the Logos. It was the word that injected order into the universe. And in fact, 
The only way that that force, that Logos, can really do its job properly, it had to have an intellect. It couldn't be a random force. It couldn't just be a blanket hanging over all of this because there was too much chaos underneath it. It had to have an intellect. To Heraclitus, the Logos was the reason of God. You see, he attributed, Heraclitus attributed the pattern and direction of not only nature, but the lives of men and women. He said the Logos was responsible for that. Heraclitus said that all things that occurred in life and in nature happened and happens and will happen with a purpose. In fact, it was the otherwise what's, why hold all of this chaos in order? Why hold it back? Why would we the, why would the Logos exist to hold back chaos if there was no purpose? Chaos is the very definition of no purpose. This is why evolution makes no sense. There can be no order in randomness if randomness was its own existence. There is reason over the top. Listen, Heraclitus existed almost 3,000 years ago, and he's smarter than these people that believe in evolution. He saw the same chaos. He saw the same change, and he didn't say it was random or by accident. He said there has to be a reason behind it, and he called that reason the Logos. He said the Logos was the mind of God, and the mind of God had purpose, and the mind of God controlled the universe and everyone and everything in it. In the beginning was the Word. Once Heraclitus discovered that philosophy. He shared it with the Greek world, and they never let it go. Listen, the ancient Greeks were very intelligent. They were very inquisitive. They marveled at the order of the universe. And before the philosophy of the Logos, they had no idea how it all came together. They recognized the definite pattern of life, but they had no idea why it existed and why it never ceased. But Heraclitus changed that. The discovery of the Logos gave the Greek people their aha moment. Even the Stoics, they're very conservative Stoics embrace the idea of the Logos. The Stoics, you've heard of the Stoics before, they said the Logos pervades all things. 
over the centuries, the Greek mindset became rooted in the concept of Logos. They saw the Logos as the creative, guiding, directive force that kept the universe from spinning off in oblivion. And that concept was just waiting for its true revelation to the whole world. And the genius of John, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, brought that wait to an end. With the opening statement of his gospel, John immediately gave the Greeks the shock of their lives. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and the word was God. That was not a shocking statement. They're like, uh-huh. Yeah, we know about that. Tell me something I don't know, John. Well, then he says, verse 14, And the word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. What? The Logos? The one we know holds everything together? He became flesh? He became a man? He came here? And as if that wasn't enough, John tells them something even more amazing. Because he says, you know that Logos? He became flesh? Well, I met him. Remember, the gospel is two aspects. I have to convince you that you're a sinner. For the Greeks, that's not so hard. But then I have to convince you that there's someone who's big enough, strong enough, and able enough to save you. That was the Greeks. That's what the Greeks needed to hear. They weren't just going to trust some Jew in Palestine. They saw the Jews as barbarians. They're not going to respect him if he's just a Jew. You and I know he's not just a Jew. He's not just a anything. He's God. And John is telling these people that. Like if he had just told them Jesus was their Savior, that is, that's going to go in one ear and out the other. How is he going to help me? But when John said that Jesus was their revered Logos and that he actually met that Logos and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of Father, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John was telling the Greek-speaking world that Jesus was their long-admired Logos and that he had come to make things right for the world, and they saw that as good news. They didn't need to be convinced that they were sinners. They need to be convinced that someone could do something about it. And the Logos came to earth to do just that. That is good news. The Apostle John, in these first few moments of his story of our Lord, shifted the light of the unknown idea of Messiahship to the light of the Logosship, if you will, of Jesus. And that was something they could grasp. 
Now listen, I'm going to repeat, John did not change anything. That's why I went through most of this lesson showing you that the Logos was something already portrayed in God's Word. The Old Testament spoke of the Logos. They just didn't call it the Logos until John came along. He didn't invent anything. He introduced another side of Jesus to the Greeks. He revealed to them that Jesus was the Logos, the creative, guiding, directive force, the one they heard from, heard about from a Heraclitus. They knew this Logos, this is something I, could, I can get. This was a message to the Jew and the Greek. Both cultures shared this common ground that the mind of God, the word, the logos, the reason, the wisdom, was in complete control of the affairs of mankind, and as such, he is a worthy Savior. I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need a Savior, but who can be that Savior? Say it, the Greeks? The logos. John was telling those Greeks that the Logos, were, the Logos was directly involved in each of their lives. He went from some far-off, even foreign and profane Jewish philosophical concept to real flesh and blood. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He brought with Him the message that not only was He the Logos of nature, not only was he the Logos for mankind, but he was the Logos for you. And that's the point of John opening his gospel with that. Let me wrap up. Look, no matter what approach you take to his word, only truth comes out. It's almost too incredible to believe. Listen, this is why I think there's so much opposition to Scripture, especially in today's world. It's just too amazing. This is the Photoshop world. Nobody believes photos anymore because somebody made it up. The Bible is the great Photoshop of philosophy. People just put it all together and they're fooling us. It's just too amazing. It has to be made up. It seems too perfect. And you know, that scares people. You see, if Scripture was really this perfect, then it must be true. And if it's true, then I must face that it applies to me. You see, all truth applies to all mankind. And that makes people uncomfortable. And so they try to discredit that which puts them in the uncomfortable spot. Well, I'm here to tell you, God's word is true. The Greeks accepted that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Christianity today. If it were not for the acceptance of Christianity among the Greek people, there would be no such thing as Christianity. Jesus is the Logos. They believed that. He's the force that we must face. He's the power that, was, that created everything. 
everything we see. And he's the power that keeps it all together. Heraclitus was right. There is a Logos. The ancient Jews were right. There is a reason and a wisdom and a power with a personality. John was right. The Word is with God and the Word is God. His name is Jesus and he's looking for you. All that power and all that wisdom and all that divinity and yet he knows your name. And he's calling you to himself. My advice is, take some time to get to know him. Talk to him in prayer. Ask him to reveal himself through his Holy Spirit. And when you do that, and you do it with sincerity and honesty, you will come to the conclusion that he is everything Heraclitus said he was, though he didn't know his name. You will discover that he's everything the ancient Jews said he was, though they didn't know what his name was. You will discover that he was everything John said he was, including what his name was, because John knew his name. The Logos is named Jesus, and he's inviting you. He's inviting you to get to know him better. You should accept that invitation. Trust me, you'll be glad you did. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.